Good to see all of you guys on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, it was crazy going from last night to today. I was like, holy cow, what just happened? Um, but uh, if you're new here, my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team and just so grateful that you're here today. And uh, if you're looking for a home church, we hope that this place becomes that for you. And uh, if we aren't a great fit for you and you want to look somewhere else, hey, that happens. Um, we'd love to help you find a great church. Um, there's a lot of good options here in the Richmond area. And we just want everyone to have a great home church to be a part of and find community in. Um, but just so thrilled that you are here. Um, how many guys are excited for Christmas? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a reminder that, um, you know, we will we'll have our Christmas Eve services. We'll have one on the 23rd at 7 o'clock, and then on uh, Christmas Eve at 11, 2, and 4. And then uh, we won't have services next Sunday. So don't, if you show up, it's just you and, or anyone else who just shows up. But we won't have services on that following Sunday. But I'm so thrilled that you guys are here today. We are in this series uh, called The Good News. And um, we've been taking just these last few weeks to kind of prep our hearts uh, for what we're going to talk about, you know, on Christmas Eve and what we're going to celebrate on Christmas Eve. And just a quick recap, and for those of you that have been paying attention, who is the good news about? So good, you guys, right? Like, good. That's an easy one. Um, what's another phrase that's used that also means good news that we see in the Bible? The gospel. Good. What's the other phrase that when you talk about the gospel or the good news that you've got to have? It's you got Jesus, the cross, and his resurrection, but you've got to have this other piece. What is it? The kingdom of God. You guys are so good. All right. So we've got to have that as part of this good news. And so we talk a lot about the kingdom of God. And, um, and so we're going to continue to kind of wrap this series up this week. And then um, we're going to, it's going to bleed into the Christmas Eve sermon uh, as well. But um, in the 1960s, there was this guy named Carl Rogers. And most of you in this room probably never heard that name before. Um, but he was a psychologist that did a lot of work around self-confidence and self-esteem. And his belief was that if they could just get everyone to have great self-confidence and think of themselves really highly, um, that that would cure a lot of society's ills. And so um, he had some good stuff that he actually taught, and then he had some weird stuff and created this like institute that got super weird. Um, but what ended up happening was um, Rogers like kind of established himself as this great thinker and really started helping people, so they thought. But what ended up happening was it was so fixated on like self-esteem and just like looking internally and that you could basically, if you could just be self-confident enough, you could solve all your problems. If you could just have a high enough self-esteem, he believed crime would go down and all these like kind of societal ills would just kind of go away. Um, clearly he was wrong. But um, what ended up happening though was, was his belief system started getting infused into a lot of celebrities. And in the 60s and the 70s in particular, they started getting involved in his institute, became a big deal. And then politicians started listening to what he was saying and started getting adapted into some laws and some educational curriculum and ended up changing the way that teachers started to grade. And then what ended up happening, started getting infused in some parenting books. All right, so in the 80s is when it kind of started taking shape and created this self-esteem movement, all right? And so um, we heard a lot of it during, during that time frame. And what ended up happening was... Um, when the self-esteem movement started happening, it was like parents would tell their kids this, you can be whatever you want to in life, right? Which is a lie. Like you, you can't, right? Now you're not going to tell your kid when he's like, I want to be a basketball player. Like, 
sorry, dude, you kind of suck. You know, it's never going to happen. You don't, you don't say that, right? But, but we start, like, you try to like, drum up and create these expectations for kids, but start getting, like, out of whack, and then, and then start moving towards this idea of, like, maybe kids shouldn't fail at something in school because it could hurt their self-esteem and some things like that. So start getting fed into a lot of different things. And then the worst part of it, honestly, was this came about here. Do you guys remember this? I'm not saying it was demonic, but maybe. I'm not saying it's not demonic. This godforsaken participation award um, started getting introduced into society. When uh, Nevaeh, our daughter, she's not 13, but um, she was in elementary school. I don't remember what grade it was, maybe second grade. I think um, she had this after-school class in jump rope, and she missed half the classes and um, wasn't even there. And, and I don't even know if she tried hard or not or whatever, but um, she came home with this award, and, uh, and she was like, Dad, look at the award I got. And I was like, oh, that's awesome, Vea. Like, great job. And I was like, did you, were you working hard? She's like, yeah. And I go, but how did you get this award? Like, you weren't even there for half the classes. And, um, and then she goes, well, everyone got it. And I was like, no. I was like, what do we do with participation awards? And she goes, burn them. And so, um, so anyway, um, so anyway, so this started getting, you know, kind of infused into culture about like this kind of self-esteem model. Do you remember when, uh, for the millennials that are in the room, um, especially the li- little bit on the older side, the millennial bracket, do you remember what the word was that we always used with uh, the millennial generation? Do you remember it starts with an E? Entitled? Right? That came from this whole self-esteem movement that fed into this enti- what was known as the entitlement generation, right? So think about this. Um, it's now called, like a lot of people are calling this like the most self-absorbed generation because it's the selfie generation. You know, so, so like think about it this way. Right? Start with the participation award of being, you know, the self-esteem. It ends with this, right, is basically what happens with just taking selfies all the time. You know, the average person um, will, will take about 28,000 selfies. All right, which is just truly crazy. Um, but when we start seeing uh, some of this, we, we start seeing like, man, it's crazy that the, the, what we saw is the self-esteem generation, and then we move into the selfie generation, and, the, and now we have a pandemic. It's like, what's going to happen, right? And so we start having this kind of mindset of like, man, is it all about ourselves? Is this really just, just about us? Is that what it really is? And so when we end up kind of talking about the gospel, we start seeing that like, man, we got to move away from this. Here's the thing about the good news. Um, you can bring the good news. You can hear the good news. You can talk about the good news. But you or me, like we aren't the good news. We are not. All right. So look at the person next to you and just say, you ain't it. Yeah. And Tell the other person that, that you didn't talk to, say, you neither, right? And so that's the reality of like where we're standing. Here's what I know about the gospel. And this is like really important when it comes to the gospel. Um, everyone is searching for a gospel. Everyone is searching for something that will save them. Everyone is searching for something that gives them purpose and hope and a future. Everyone is searching for why they're on this earth. Everyone wants to know what the good news is, and they're looking to a lot of different things. You know, a lot of times um, when you hear about athletes, um, professional athletes, they get to the pinnacle of their sport, and um, they end up retiring, and you begin to see, what do they often do? They come back and play again, right? Because their, their whole identity was wrapped up in that sport, whatever they were doing. Um, or they go into a deep depression afterwards and don't know what to do and make horrible decisions in their life. 
And then you see, um, you guys may have lived this part of your life where you wanted this job so bad and you wanted to make all this money and then you got in that job and got that money and you realized, mm, this isn't it. Like I don't have the same relationships Man, what I used to be able to invest my life in, I can't do that anymore. And like this money is great, but it's not like taking me where I need to go. And, um, and so now you can obviously, the, you, can, you can work your way up and do this in the right way. But my, my point is, is when we just make it about ourselves and our desire and just be so self-focused, we lose it. We lose the purpose in the core of the gospel. Um, the main thought today, is it froze? Did it freeze up here? It did. Um, let me see if I can get this out. The main thought here this morning um, is simply this, that the wrong go- gospel will shipwreck your soul. The wrong gospel, that was supposed to come up earlier. Um, <laughs> the wrong gospel will shipwreck uh, your soul. All right, the wrong gospel will shipwreck your soul. And we see this everywhere around us. Now, um, I want to go into Romans chapter 1 today because um, when Paul is writing this letter, it's, it's fascinating. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, um, Paul was one of the early leaders of the, the early church. And uh, he wrote a lot, of the, a, lot, a lot of the New Testament. And Paul was this guy who was like, he, was, he hated Christianity and actually tried to kill it, literally. Um, and then become its, became its greatest advocate. But Paul writes this letter to the early church in Rome. Rome has gone through a lot um, in their history, and in particular with the church. Um, Emperor Claudius was around at this point in time of Paul's writing, and he had actually sent uh, all the Jewish folks that had like, made them leave for five years from Rome. And so they dispersed everywhere. But what was happening was in Rome, the Gentile church, the, non-Jew, the non-Jew church, um, started growing rapidly. But then Jewish folks started coming back in. Jewish Christians started coming back into the church. And so this interesting thing started happening where they were, had all this like division and they were built on like, hey, we want it this way and I want it this way. And I know we can't imagine anything like this, but like there was built like on their preferences. And um, what ended up happening was uh, a little bit of a divide started happening within the church. And so Paul Paul writes this letter um, to them to be like, to be A, an encouragement, but B, to help infuse them with a deeper knowledge of the gospel, a deeper understanding of what this good news really is and what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. And so he goes in for 16 chapters, and, uh, which is pretty long, and, and talks about all the depth of the gospel. That's why in this series, I've tried to get us to move away from trying to shrink the gospel into this nice, neat little message. Because when you look at the Bible, it's so nuanced. There's so much to it and so much depth to it. And so Paul's writing this to them at this time. And so he goes in, in the first part of his letter here in Romans 1, it says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. You notice he changes his language there 
um, between Jewish and Gentile to Greeks and non-Greeks, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, um, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach this gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, when Paul's writing this letter, he's talking about this gospel being on the move. Like it's, it's moving so much. In verse 8, he, he talks about how um, it's being reported all over the world. And then at the end there, he says the, light, the, the righteous will live by faith. And here's what he's saying about this gospel message. That the gospel message is not about conversion. It's a piece of the conversation that we have to make a commitment to want to follow Jesus. But it's not about conversion and it stops there. That is a lived out thing. That when the gospel's on the move, those that have said they have chosen Jesus are living it out. And there's this attachment to the depth of what this good news actually is. So what does the gospel look like when it's on the move? Number one here, people talk about it and so will you. People talk about it and so will you. That when the gospel is actually moving throughout a community, when this good news is really good news, people can't stop talking about it because they've experienced it. They see what happens within the community when people that call themselves Christians, that they're like, man, this thing that's happening through you guys, we just can't stop talking about it. It's like, man, this grouping of Christians has, has been so generous and so kind and so loving, and man, we can't imagine our lives in our city without them here. That that's what happens when the gospel is really on the move. That man, they're like, like you have family that would say, man, I might not believe what they believe, but I'm so thankful we're family. They have people in their cities that would say, I might not fully trust in Jesus the way that they do, but I can't imagine our city without the Christians in it. I'm so thankful there are churches here. That's what happens when the gospel is on the move because people experience it. And what ends up happening is that the people that don't actually believe in Jesus quite yet keep talking about this whole Jesus thing. And this is not like, this is normative. We see this in so many different areas of the world, even right now. Um, there is this false narrative that's put out there that the church is somehow shrinking and that the gospel is not moving. I'm telling you, globally, like the gospel is exploding. I mean, it's exploding all throughout all different areas of the world. Like it's exploding. And you go into some of these different areas. When we went to um, Africa a few years ago, and we were in Kenya, um, they couldn't stop talking about how much like, the message of Jesus was just spreading all throughout the continent. And that, that people everywhere were coming to this faith in Jesus. And that people that, that didn't actually know Jesus yet like, loved all the churches because they did so much in the communities. And so even in that moment, they were like, there must be something true about this gospel message because I can't imagine my life without these Christians in it. And so they're going to naturally start talking about it. And that should be like a, like when we start thinking about our own lives and our own community here, that should be something as like a challenge for us, right? Because it's like, if the gospel is on our move in our city, truly, then people should say things like this, not just about our church, but we should be part of the conversation. It should be like, man, I can't imagine Richmond without Hill City in it. If they were to somehow like vacate the premises of, of Richmond, man, there would be this deep hole in our city. 
because the gospel is on the move through it. And people start talking about it. You know, when, um, for those of you maybe in the business world, maybe you've seen this before, um, but there is, um, we were in a meeting here recently, I was reminded of this, that there's like a business marketing strategy that starts with this, that everyone starts as a stranger to friend. This is the goal of every organization, all right? To customer, come back here, to evangelist. Oops. That's the goal of every organization. And that's what happens, right? We start off, think about any product that you're an evangelist of, okay? That you're like, man, I'm going to tell everyone about this product. Whatever that product is. For me, we'll just use Pearl's Cupcake. All right, that says, like, I, they should pay me at this point. Um, but, like, I love, like, I love their cupcakes, right? But what happened was is I stumbled across them because of a huge sweet tooth. But I was a stranger to their business. I partake, partook in one of their cupcakes, and I was like, wow, this is really good. And I became a friend of it, and I even liked it on Facebook, okay, because I wanted to get their updates. And what ended up happening was I had it multiple times and thought, whoa, this is legit, right? And moved to a regular customer to now where I'm a raving evangelist of them. Okay, well, literally, we have them at all of our birthdays here, whatever. We, I don't even want to know how much money we spent there. But like, personally. And this is what happens for everyone, that to become a stranger to a friend, there needs to be, you need to like them. To become a friend to a customer, you need to trust them. To become a customer to an evangelist, you have to be wowed by what they do. And so every organization tries to achieve this, even for you coming here. Um, Some of you guys walked in this building as a stranger to Hill City, and there was something about us that you liked And eventually, what ended up happening, you started to come, maybe semi-frequently, and you began to trust us. You began to trust, and maybe you came here with like a lot of church hurt or something, and it took you a little bit, but you're like, man, I can trust who they are. And as you began to trust us, then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, look what's happening within the community that I'm a part of. I want to tell other people about it. And you became an evangelist. And so that's the idea. That's what was happening with the gospel. That people are moving from this idea of like, hmm, I like them to now I trust them to them. I am blown away by this message. I'm blown away by what's happening in this community. And I'm going to tell everybody about it. That's when the gospel is really on the move. And I started thinking about this. The reality is, is that people, uh, every single one of us can choose to accept or deny this message of Jesus. We can. We can reject it if we want to. um, Or we can accept it. And... I started thinking about this. I was like, man, what would happen if everyone liked the church, trusted the church, and were wowed by all the things the church did? My guess would be not a lot of people would reject Jesus. Because here's what I know. Um, Even in this deconstruction, like, kind of era that we're in, and and a lot of the deconstruction that happens is, is for, like, really good reasons, honestly. Like whether it's like church abuse or like something horrible that's happened in some capacity, or um, maybe they just had, you know, they didn't, they got burned by Christians or whatever. I rarely, I rarely read or hear or talk to anyone that is deconstructing Jesus. They might be deconstructing the church, but it's really rare Jesus. Because man, when you really start reading what Jesus taught and you're like, man, that really makes a lot of sense if people just lived like this. Like, you could not, hypothetically, you could not believe in Jesus and follow everything that he taught 
and man, this world would be an infinitely better place. Now, there's, there's way more to it, of course. So people aren't really necessarily, I mean, there's some, but, but really, if they could experience the church, then they'd be like, man, I like them. I, I trust them. I'm wowed by what they're doing because of this whole Jesus thing. I honestly feel we would see more and more people become evangelists for the church. More and more people would become evangelists for the gospel. And things would radically begin to change in our community because that's what was happening there. This guy, Michael Thompson, who's a theologian, he, he said what was happening in the church at Rome because the gospel was on a move was like the first holy internet. That everyone was sharing their experiences with everyone. And the word was just spreading so fast, like faster than anything else had ever done before. Something was on the move and it was so critical. Now, what was the thing that was um, a redefining characteristic of the church? And it's this thing that theologians call Christiformity, all right? So this is like a fancy word, but Christiformity. Here's all this is. It's a lived theology to be like Christ. And this is what I mean. You can't just call yourself a Christian. Your lived theology is like Christ. Um, you don't act on or out of any power or privilege in any way, shape, or form. Like, we don't, we're not interested in power and privilege. We don't, we don't act on, we, we are, there's a humility to Christians. There's a humility to the church to serve and to be generous and to sacrifice like that, because that's what Jesus did. And then the third thing is there's a level of lived obedience that looks like what Jesus taught. A level of lived obedience that lived like what Jesus taught. And so um, we begin to see that, man, when people experience this, it really does change how people see Christians. It really does change how people see the church. It really does change the idea of what the good news actually is. Because you end up being around, you're like, mm, when you start sharing your faith, you're like, People are like, oh, I see it. And that actually is good news. Rather than being like, oh, I don't like you as a person. Why would I want this news you're bringing me? Well, I don't like you as a church. Like, you guys are, are so negative and you're so judgmental. Like, why would I want that? That's not good news. You can get that anywhere. So there's something that begins to shift and change. Here's the second thing that happens when the gospel is on the move. People come together. Um, there's so much talk uh, around, uh, in particular, racial issues in our country, which there should be. And um, so much to be explored still, so much to fix, all that stuff. Here's what's fascinating to me about the conversation. Paul, who wrote this, was brilliant at establishing multi-ethnic communities in places all around the world that no one else was able to do it. The Christian church, okay, so get this. The New Testament church, the Christian church, was the first multi-ethnic community. Everyone else was separated. And so the church infused this multi-ethnic community. This church infused this idea that the rich and the poor could gather together and that they're on the same playing field. But the church did this. And Paul um, established this stuff in city after city after city after city. And so often, you know, he talks about, in verse 11, he talks about that we're going to be mutually encouraged, that we're going to build one another up. And that's on all levels of society. And it's interesting that a lot of the conversations that we're having around this, um, the gospel um, has a lot of answers to all of this stuff, truly. I believe at the heart of so many of the issues that we see in this conversation, I'm like, man, 
If we just lived like Jesus taught us to live, it would answer this. All of us. We would take a step back with such humility and we would listen incredibly well. We would be willing to, to ask for forgiveness. We would repent of certain things that maybe we've done wrong. We would begin to look in love and have this uncommon love that we see within the context of these people back 2,000 years ago. It was something that redefined culture everywhere. People didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, I'm looking at what's happening now it's still in our country. I'm like, yeah, there's some good stuff and clearly there's some awful stuff. But like, I'm like, man, if we get away from Jesus being the centering point, things go awry just like that. When we fix our eyes on something else besides Jesus in the conversation, we lose it. We lose it. But man, when people come together with Jesus at the centering point, everything begins to change. This uncommon love starts to happen. You see, for when people were hearing this message, it was fascinating because um, both the Jews and the Gentiles were actually acting a little bit out of power and privilege. For the Jews, um, remember in this passage, it said um, that Paul says this comes to the Jews first. And so uh, part of the story of the Jewish people with Israel is that they were built into this great nation because they were God's chosen people in the beginning. But they kept turning away from him. But they had this message that eventually this nation, this kingdom would be restored through this Messiah, through this Savior. And so there was this feeling, uh, if you were Jewish, that someday we're going to rise to power again. Someday we'll have the great king back. Someday the kingdom of God will be established. Someday we'll be privileged again. And that was part of what they thought. And so for them, it was like it was all about this nation tied into God. And even for the Gentiles, they were part of this um, Rome, the, the empire, right? The greatest empire ever. And no one could defeat them and everything. And they were part of this. And they had this kind of arrogance about that too. And so they were both in this kind of nation state kind of mindset and everything. And when Paul starts preaching, he's like, that ain't it. You guys got to move off of this idea around a nation of anything because God's kingdom is so different. God's kingdom will go against and subvert any kind of empire. God's kingdom will go against, and I don't care where you live or where you were raised or anything, God's kingdom is different than the culture of that empire. And so Paul is trying to get them to understand that. So in verse 14, when he talks about the Greeks and the non-Greeks, he's trying to pull them back and be like, hey, y'all are getting too hype on who you are right now, so I'm just going to refer to you in a different way. And even refer to you in weak and strong and everything. He's like, I'm going to pull back a little bit because I need you guys to hear me out. That it's not about power. It's not about acting on privilege. It's not about some kind of nation. It's about the kingdom of God. And that those that follow Jesus will be so centered on the Jesus being the centering point in the kingdom that they'll realize that it's never been about a nation. So it's never been about Rome. It was, they weren't saved by Rome, right? It's not about, like, Africa, like right now, I was saying earlier, like, Africa's exploding with Christianity. They're not like a Christian continent. Like, it's not about Africa, South America exploding. It's not, it's not about South America, America. It's not about America, right? It's not about being a Christian nation. It's like, man, when we follow Jesus, we realize it's not about any of this stuff. You might love where you live. That's fine. But it's like, man, when I think about this, it's like when the gospel is on the move, it's like we are the kingdom of God. Lacey always says this. She's a citizen of the world. And, um, and her, her, her mindset with that is always saying that, like, listen, an Iraqi Christian is just as much my brother and sister as an American one, right? And this happens all over the world. And so our viewpoint starts shifting from, like, how the gospel begins to move into this global movement. 
Here's one way to think about it. For God so loved the world that he doesn't save it through a nation. He saves it through the cross and resurrection. And so we hit pause in all these conversations and say, is Jesus the centering point in all of this? Is Jesus really the centering point in how we begin to view? When we don't, we start missing the point. Another way to think about it is this way. When we abandon Jesus as a centering point, we will do the very things Jesus said will prohibit us from experiencing the kingdom of God. So when we take Jesus out of a conversation around race, we will not experience the kingdom of God. When we take Jesus out of a conversation around sexuality, we will not experience the kingdom of God. When we take Jesus out of a conversation around politics, we will not experience the kingdom of God. When we take Jesus out of a conversation around anything, I don't care, money, whatever, we will not experience the kingdom of God. Jesus has got to be the centering point in that. And when it is, people come together. There's an uncommon love that's a result. But when we take them out, we start celebrating all the wrong things. I recently uh, read this book about the, um, how many of you guys are Netflix subscribers? Cool. All right. So they have this book about their leadership team. Because everyone, you know, like, man, look at Netflix. They're making billions of dollars and all sorts of stuff. And so uh, look what they're doing, like, in the marketplace and everything. And so there's this leadership book um, about their culture. And it's fascinating to me because I'm reading the book, and there's some good parts in it, but I'm reading the book, and I'm like, man, so much of how they think and talk and act is not how we think as Christians. And then I was doing, a, I was reading two other books at the same time. I was talking about like the tech industry and the culture of the tech industry and what's happening even within the context of Netflix and stuff. And it's like truly debaucherous. And, um, and I'm like, man, it's crazy. This is a bestseller and we're celebrating all these things. And Jesus is totally removed from even any kind of leadership conversation. I'm like, this is like the perfect example. We're celebrating all the wrong things. You celebrate all the wrong things. People divide. People hurt one another. People use power and privilege over another, like one another and leverage everything. And we don't experience the kingdom of God. Here's the last thing. When the gospel's on the move, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed. Go back to verse 16. Look what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. When the Bible talks about salvation, um, it's pretty nuanced, and we're going to look at that in a second. But the Bible refers to this idea of, like, we get to experience the kingdom of God now, but there's also, like, this not yet to it. And so there's always this kind of like a little bit of attention. You, you, you experience something now, but then there's a not yet. This idea of salvation is an important one because I'm telling you, everyone on the face of this planet wonders what's going to save them. Some people think it's themselves or their own intellect or whatever it is. But we're all wondering, what can save me? What can give me hope? What can give me purpose? What can give me direction? What can my life be built on? And everyone's trying to answer that question, and they answer it in one way or another. But when the Bible begins to talk about this, it's like, man, no, I want to talk about what salvation really is, and you, you shouldn't be ashamed of this. You shouldn't cower away from this. And here's how the Bible talks about salvation. There's this idea of right standing with God. That, that's part of the salvation message, that the man we are saved, and it's like, man, we are in right standing with the creator God, okay, which is a good thing, all right? The second way it talks about it is there's salvation, there's like this obedience and living it out with a desire of holiness. 
So when it starts talking about salvation, you can't remove the living it out part, okay? A lot of times it's like, ooh, we've been saved. And so we're in right standing with God, but like when the Bible talks about salvation, right with it is this idea of you're also living this out and this, the desire of holiness. And then the third part is a subversion of empire thinking and culture. We don't like to talk about that, but let me just say this. We're about to celebrate Christmas. I'm telling you, part of the message of Christmas that people don't like to talk about is the subversion of all the empire thinking. Did Jesus come to a rich majesty king? Was he born in a palace? Was he born with any kind of power? Was he born to the right kind of people with the right name or anything? And the answer is no. Did he appear first to all the influencers of Rome? No. So we see it's like this subversion of power and privilege of thinking that every, listen, every culture in the history of cultures has it. And the message of Jesus is subverting that, and that's part of the salvation message. Jesus subverts the empire we live in and the one we try to build in our own hearts where we are king. So when we begin to see and live out this message of Jesus, we realize, hey, can we have a moment of honesty? How many of you guys have tried to be your own king or queen? Jesus subverts that. He's like, oh, no, no, I get it. You think you're a big deal. You think you're going to build this all on your own. Let me just tell you something. Like, you know you, right? How many of y'all thought something this week that wasn't Jesus-like? That wouldn't save anybody, right? And so, you know you and I know me. And, And how often do you think this to yourself? I should be further along. And you realize quickly that "Mm, we don't have all the answers. You cannot be your own king or your own queen to take this away. And so Jesus is going to subvert that way of thinking and be like, I'm the king of all of this. And it is my kingdom. And that is all that can save. And that's where the power is revealed. And he doesn't want you to be ashamed of this. He wants you to be bold around this. He wants you to live proudly with the fact of this gospel message because of what it means. But here's what will happen. Culture around us will try and shame you for believing in this Jesus. You believe in someone died and rose again. You believe in miracles. You believe in these teachings that should shape your morality. You believe in this stuff. You believe someone could be healed. You believe in this stuff that would try to shame you. Even the message of Jesus in the context of Roman culture, think about it. He went up, Jesus died on a what? cross. On that cross was the epitome of shame. The reason why Rome did that, they would strip you down naked, they put you on a cross because here's what they wanted to do. They wanted to shame you. It wasn't just about death. They wanted to shame you up on that cross because they would do it publicly. They would put it on a thoroughfare where people would just, a lot of times we think, oh, it's off in the distance. But even if you go to Israel and you see where Jesus was crucified, people by the thousands would have just been walking by it. And they would have just seen him hanging up there naked. And the reason why they do this is because they want you vulnerable and the most possible ashamed you could ever be. And the reason that they do that, and Rome did that, was because they wanted to have power over the people. So think about that. Jesus goes, here's what I'm going to do. This is like the ultimate baller move, right? He goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up on that thing that you think is going to shame me. And I'm going to make you think you won. And then three days later, I'm going to be like, what's up? Right? I'm like way more powerful than this. And so it changes everything. 
It changes everything. He takes what someone might try to shame you and is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to boldly say, like, this is what happened. So when someone tries to shame you about being a Christian, you be like, mm, I get it, but Jesus died and rose again. You believe that? Like, yes, I do. And that is what shapes my entire life. And I'm going to proudly talk about that. I'm going to proudly live that out. I'm going to proudly stand here and be like, yeah, when we have conversations, that Jesus is going to be at the center of it. There have been people who have tried to shame me for things that I've said with Jesus being at the centering point. And they've been like, how could you say that? And don't, are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? Are you blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, listen, it is about Jesus, and that is it. You can try and shame that if you want to, but it is about Jesus. And I will never be ashamed of that. I will proudly talk about that. I love this quote um, by Michael Bird. He says this. The gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uber-mega-grace power that results in salvation. That's what it's about. That's why we are not ashamed. That's why we proudly can say that this is the good news and this is the best news for your life. So if you walked in here today struggling and trying to find hope and purpose and all that stuff, I'm telling you that this message of Jesus is the best news for your life. You will find hope nowhere else like this. That's why we're not ashamed. I'm going to leave you with this one gut punch. Ben, you guys can come back up from Jesus. These are Jesus' words, not mine. If anyone is ashamed of me, and my message in these adulterous and sinful days. Can we admit for a second we're in adulterous and sinful days? All right? So, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory of his Father with his holy angels. Sometimes Jesus says, come here, let me hug on you. Sometimes he says, I'm going to uppercut you to the jaw. This is one of those times. Well, he's asking those that follow him, are you ashamed of me or not? Are you willing to be bold? We're going to sing this song in a second. Um, it's a new song, but it's about like having this gratitude of who God is. And there's a part in this song that talks about there's a lion inside your lungs. It's and, and the base of that is like, man, there's something inside of you. If you follow Jesus, I'm, t I'm telling you, there's something inside of you that needs to come out in a boldness. It's, it's got to be inside and it needs to come out. That's what's in there. So I want us to pause as these guys get ready. I just want you to take all this in. And so we're going gonna, gonna to be silent, close your eyes for a little bit. Jesus, I believe God's speaking to us. Um, no ways, but he's speaking to you in some capacity this morning, and I want you to wrestle with that. So go ahead.